Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for visual artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding to working artists, to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Despite having 200% more education, working artists earn $6,000 less than workers with similar education. Now, more than 35% are self-employed, yet less than a third have achieved full sustainability, meaning they fully support themselves with their art. The difference between just making art and creating a sustainable art career that strengthens the economy for a lifetime is proper business training and tools. You can have an exponential impact with just a small donation. So give small at clarkhealingsfund.org impact. Your investment does not buy an artist a fish, it buys the fishing rod. That's clarkhealingsfund.org impact. We'd certainly appreciate your gift. Now, our guest today is Alida Duvall. Alida is an artist advisor and art marketing strategist with a background in training and organizational development. She's also the owner of Artist Career Training, a business coaching company for artists. She's author of My Real Job as Being an Artist and the winner of the 2016 Benjamin Franklin Award for Best Voice in Nonfiction. Alida, welcome to the show. Can you take a minute to tell us a little bit more in your own words about yourself and what you do for a living? Thank you, Daniel. Happily, I'm equal parts artist, educator, and entrepreneur, which is incidentally what every artist listening needs to be as well. And we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, during the interview. My main goal is to make the business of art simpler and art marketing easier so artists can make connections and make sales. I think aside from making art, that's what they all want. And the way I do that, well, a number of different ways, as you'll probably see on my website, but I think that more importantly, what I do is bring a kaleidoscope of ideas and perspectives to every artist who wants to know either what it is to be a working artist or how to do the dream they already have, and as you so put it, put it so well, to thrive at that. And since I am an artist, I use the eyes of an artist, I use the ears of a good listener, and the words of a writer, as well as a sense of rhythm to, to really help artists create a more satisfying and sustainable business and a lifestyle. And I've learned a lot from the artists as well as helping them learn because over the past 20 years, I've worked with over 4,000 artists in groups and about 450 individually, some of them for several years in a row, which is an interesting switch to see. And most of that experience I've distilled into the book that I talked you talked about at the beginning, My Real Job is Being an Artist, because one of my legacy projects was to pass on to artists some reassurance that a lot of the things they're doing on the right track and that with a little guidance, they can get the rest of the way. And I know that's something that you all are trying to help them do as well. So Alida, help us understand what exactly does an artist advisor do? Oh, well, the first thing you do is a lot of listening. <laughs> um, as an artist advisor, I am not uh, an art consultant. In other words, I do not put artists directly in line with collectors or galleries, but I teach them how to do that themselves. You talked about a fishing rod, buying a fishing rod. Well, I actually help them how to build their own fishing rod so they can go fishing in their own environment the way they want to fish because I've seen some of those fishing rods that were built for people, and they don't work for everyone. Every artist needs to be able to create their own vision of their own art, lifestyle, and their life, and then decide how they're going to go after that. So my job is to help them figure that out. I know Elizabeth uh, talks about that in some of her blog posts, that what somebody else is doing isn't necessarily what you're going to do. 
so that when I talk to an artist, I first ask them, what do you want to do? What have you done that's working? What have you done that you don't think is working? And we start there. Then we go where they want to go with my guidance. So what led you to become an artist advisor? You know, I think uh, you spent 40 years working in the banking industry. <laughs> Thankfully, not 40 years in the banking industry. <laughs> but my first, oh, my first uh, 10 years were in the banking industry. I started off as an English major and uh, because I love to read. I had no notion of what I wanted to do for a living. And I did, though, love to learn. And so very early on in my, I entered a management training program in a banking situation where in order to graduate from the program, I had to teach the next trainees what I had learned. And they saw that I was really good at that. So after having moved myself to where that job was, they moved me back to where I'd moved from and said, we're putting you in charge of training. So really from the beginning, um, I've been focused on learning and training. And that meant that um, uh, I started then looking for other ways to do that. I ended up with a master's in adult education because I was more interested in teaching adults. And then through a health crisis, um, had to quit a career that would have taken me right up a corporate banking ladder. And I was, in a way, I'm really glad that happened. Um, the crisis was what introduced me to art as an avenue for healing. And um, I've written a lot about that and have actually done a lot of work with artists with diversity because of that experience. So art really got me to a point where I saw that the coaching and training I was doing could be much more useful if I focused on art as the core of my life. It was what healed my situation and the chronic illness that I had. And so I began to make a transition from my career where I had been training people in all kinds of walks of life and focused specifically on artists. I uh, couldn't do that right away. Like many artists, I needed some funds um, to get myself through that transition, especially after the health issues. So I did part-time. I started training executives in problem-solving and diversity management through using creativity. And I got some weird looks, I have to tell you, when I'd be in a boardroom with a bunch of tinker toys and different things spread across the table and executives trying to solve a problem of having 68 different nationalities in their particular arm of banking. You know, I said 40, I misread my note, and you can kill me for that later, but I, I said 40 years in the banking industry. I meant that you were in the banking industry until 40, and so I deserve okay. what, whatever comes from I feel really old. <laughs> yes. And, well, but it does feel like, it, it feels like that lifetime, though. It's interesting that you say that. Um, because I think during that time, the whole art situation has changed, and I've grown with it. Um, but that transition took me to realizing I needed to get out of corporate life. It was killing my creative, uh, really, essence, and I needed to get healthy again. So I set up um, my, uh, my own gallery called The Loft Gallery, where I sold my art, and I also sold the work of other artists, primarily artisans, who made uh, things from diverse cultures like dream catchers from the native culture, uh, tamari from the Japanese culture, those kinds of things. It all fit with my own background, uh, having lived around the world. And also then um, decided I needed to get moved to a different climate, again, for my health, 
and moved to California where the first art show I saw was the transition point to artist career training. And it was fascinating. I was walking along a show and saw a book that an artist who had used my workshop, my loft gallery for workshops, had used to train people in storytelling. And there was the author of that book at this art show. And it was one of those moments, you could call it coincidence or fate. But I went over to her and asked her about the book and how she had learned how to market her work so well. And that led to a conversation about artist career training, and that led to me going into doing just that. So it was preparation for, well, 40 years <laughs> in order to do that, I think. It was the way I would see it. Now, um, you focused on your art leaving corporate life and focused on building a business around art, but why Why the focus on the business side of arts? And do you see artists becoming more aware of their roles as proprietors of their own businesses? Well, what, initially why that was was because as a trainer, and I'm, I'm, that's my whole background is as a trainer and educator, the first thing you do is say, who is my audience? And the second thing you do is say, what are their problems and what are their strengths and how can we make use of those? So I was going about building my art business doing that. I, my first shows, I did, there were, in that, those days, and not 40 years ago, but 20 years ago, 25 years ago, there were not the same kind of people around like you and I to help artists. There were a few, there were some books, but there was not the masses of information on the internet. And so... At that point, what I needed to do was figure out my own route. And people started saying, how are you doing this? I would have two or 300 people to each um, opening that I had in my gallery. And I would sell at least 50% of my work. And I had no clue how I was doing it, except that I was really paying attention to what I was putting out, who was going to be there. And I probably did 10 follow-ups with everybody and again, remember, very little email to make sure they were going to be at those sessions. So, yes, now I think people are more aware of it. If anything, people like me have been part of the problem. We have put so much emphasis on you also have to be an expert at business that I think we've kind of lost sight a little bit of the fact that we're all facing these enormous challenges in our environment but most people have corporations around them to support them. Artists typically don't, and that's why I think organizations like yours and Artist Career Training have an important role to play, not just in their information and their competence, but in their confidence as well. Now, you and I both came from corporate life. You know, mm -hmm. In my case, I left uh, Fortune 500 life, a number of, of major corporations, and uh, I, I learned a lot that's helped mm -hmm. me in my business and my private practice that um, I would never go back. It's, uh, it's not what I want to do, but I am appreciative and, and I'm not happy about the, the negative, experiences I've, negative experiences I've had, but I'm very appreciative of some of the systems and the concepts and the shorthands and the, the processes that I learned. They've really, really been useful for me in running a small business. Uh, and I, as a, consequently, I've been able to start um, three small businesses and run them successfully. Um, all three of them are going concerns. And so I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. You know, having come out of corporate life and also seeing where artists are, many, some of whom 
are like us, but some don't have that corporate background. Mm -hmm. Can working artists learn from corporate models? Is is that beneficial, and is there a way to achieve that? Are there are there things they can learn? I wouldn't say the corporate business model. I would definitely not say that would be helpful to artists. It's it's the same thing to me as someone with a. I hope you don't have a master's in business administration, but. Um, having worked with a lot of small business owners, if you have an MBA, that's not going to help you run a small business. But if you look at some of the performance management systems that corporations use, I think they're elucidating for artists. And in fact, I use them in my coaching. So one that you're probably familiar with is um, the performance management model. And the one that I used to use was that performance is a combination of skills and knowledge motivation incentives, and tools and work environment. Now, the skills and knowledge artists can either learn on their own or they can take courses, they can do art degrees, um, and those in varying degrees will give them some business information. Mostly it will help them with their art. The skills and knowledge on the business side, can get, they can get from people like me or from you. Motivation incentives. This is a place where I think artists need to look a little deeper. A lot of artists I hear are going after incentives, and what they need to think about is motivation. So motivation is internal. It's, here's what I'm going after. This is my vision as an artist. I am so into this vision that I'm going to make it happen. Incentives is, if I drop the price on this piece of art right now, I'll make a sale. And so that's a transactional approach, and I think that's one of the places where artists get themselves into trouble. They don't have an overall consistent approach to what's driving their performance. And then the third area that in corporations they look at is tools and your work environment. And here again, this is an area where I always tell artists, focus on getting the best tools you can for your art and for your business. If you have to buy fewer art tools, but you can buy the best, most artists don't have a problem with doing that once they can and once they see the, the merit of going from, for example, students' uh, paints to professional paints. And also the environment. If you have to do... I've, there was a time when I had to make my art on the top of my dog's crate. It's the only room I had. Now I have a full studio with great north lighting and everything. But in either case, I adjusted what I wanted to do to suit the environment. So. The performance model doesn't say you have to have the best skills and knowledge. It doesn't say you have to have complete driving motivation and only worry about incentives that are accessible. It doesn't say that you have to have the best tools and best environment, but it says you have to consider all those things as you decide how you're going to run your business. And an art business is a business. So that's, all of these things are things I think artists could use to look at their careers in a different way. I, I, there's a couple of things you said that, that stick with me, uh, well, a lot, actually, but, but not to recap it all. Um, you talked about the difference between a transactional model and mm -hmm. what is essentially a, a con consultative model mm -hmm. of doing business. And I think um, I used to, to do B2B sales training, and that's, that's a really important way to look at things, mm -hmm. um, that if you reduce things to the transaction, you have to increase your volume exponentially uh, to make uh, an effort profitable. Uh, but if you if you focus on growing uh, relationships that last a long time and mm -hmm. uh, and that become 
long-term relationships, you um, you get more out of them. You you don't have to do as much of it. So I like that. Yeah. I like what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. And I um, I wonder if we could turn some of this around too. Do you think that corporations um, could learn something from artists? I mean, if it's possible that. Um, there are some systems from the corporate world that apply to artists. Are there, is it possible that some of the some of the the negative or the egregious absences that we see in corporate life could be um, solved by things that artists know how to do? You know, that was always part of my mission when I was teaching the executives creativity and problem solving and diversity skills and so on using art and creative methods, but. I think there, the structure of the organization and the embedded communication systems are going to slow everything down, and I was privy to lots of sessions where I would talk to to the senior management and say, we really want to hear what people have to say, and then I would tell them what people are saying. They said, oh, we don't want to hear that. (laughs) So I think that uh, if corporations could open up to the fact that they use art and artists every day in their business, and actually acknowledge that, and if they don't, you know, fight for getting their artwork for free, as the Orphan Works Law would have you um, believe is going to happen, then I think they could be supporting artists and overall creating a more vibrant economy. I'd rather see them support artists even elsewhere, even if they don't want to recognize them in their own organization, and they have a lot of them there, um, so that art generally does not lose its place in culture. It's getting, I think, submerged through technology now. And I think there's a real need to bring back the essence of what art is for for humanity and culture. So let me ask you a more pointed question. How how can artists ensure that their careers last? And, And what should they be thinking about now in order to have a long and successful career in the future? Well, the first thing is that if they want their careers to last, and they'd start off, I think, with you know three things that if, if I was going to narrow it down, all the things that I talk about, the ones that I noticed um, for artists that I'm still working with and who are now making several of them are making between eighty and a hundred thousand dollars now, they've been at it for fifteen years, so that's a long time. First thing artists have to realize is it may take that long. It's not going to happen in two years for most of them. So the first thing is a very strong body of signature art because if you have that and you continually work at that and refine it, that takes you back to the reason you're doing all of this. And it needs to be better and better art because now everybody with a camera thinks they're a photographer. Everyone that can swipe a screen can make some squiggle art. So that means that the artists who consider themselves professional working artists and who make what we still call, for now anyway, fine art, need to have that as their very strongest anchor. The second thing is if you want a sustainable career, then don't build a business vision that is so far away from where you are now that it feels impossible. Because back to motivation incentives, you'll just give up before you really go far. You need to really have a business vision that's a very long-term fluid one. So I want to have my art in five galleries, five national galleries by the time I'm 45. And I'm now 25. That gives me 20 years, long time. I like those kinds of big, long visions. They give you lots of room to do things 
and to work out what's actually going to happen. So the next thing is then if you have a vision, it doesn't do you any good unless you have some good, solid systems. You know, we were talking about corporations. They do have good systems, mostly, you know, for record keeping. I think artists need to do that as well, but they need to be very active systems that they're in touch with all the time, not legacy systems. And then they need to have good work habits. If you don't go into the studio every day, it's unlikely you're going to have a body of work to travel across the country uh, in, in 25 years, even 50 years, unless you're actively working at that. The third thing they need to do is then, now that you've got that, then there are three things to look at underneath the marketing umbrella that I think are important. The very first one is relationship strategies. The second one is promotion, and the third is advertising. And I think between those things, if artists focus on that as a foundation, then they have a chance of building a sustainable career. Um, And that means that they have to think about their personal economy as well as the general economy. What do I need to support myself and my family and my art business in the way that I'm accustomed to or want to? And what's it going to take for me to get that? Is it going to take a part-time job for now? Maybe. That's okay. There's, there's no shame in that. Um, but here's where I think artists need to sit down and do, I guess, get out of the, the um, flying debris of email and social media and everything and step back and say, why am I doing all of this? So let me ask you this. Are you, why, why focus on anything other than your art? Uh, because, you know, artists struggle with this, too. Um, they struggle with whether to treat their art as a business or as a purely creative hobby. And they struggle whether to to really focus on anything other than, say, studio time or their art. Uh, why, why are you doing art career training versus just purely sticking to your art? And why take your art seriously versus treat it as a hobby? Well, I think it's fair. It, treating it as a hobby is... is also taking it seriously. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's fine for artists to say, this is what I'm going to do. In fact, some of the people that I've been in touch with recently through my book have said to me, thank God I don't have to do that anymore. I was really happy having it as a hobby, and everyone kept telling me I should sell it. So I think that um, for artists, the reason I do it is to figure out, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a hobbyist? Do you want to be an amateur artist? Do you want to start making money with this, or do you want to make this your full-time career? They're all valid career paths. And so in artist career training, you know, going back to the idea of corporate training, there were always different models there for how you proceeded through a, de- a corporation. And for some people, they never went past administrator, and they were happy there. No one said, you should become a senior manager. And yet they do this to artists, because we've decided that either you're a hobbyist or a serious, and there's doesn't seem to be much ground in between, and I think there ought to be. That's a great answer. You're listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a production of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund delivers podcast courses like this at the pleasure of our audience. And that means if you're finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month would be a welcome and appropriate way to sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. Know also that a portion of our funding goes to deliver direct education to artists who've demonstrated a clear, achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. 
Share this commitment with us now at clarkhealingsfund.org slash impact. That's clarkhealingsfund.org slash impact. We'd certainly appreciate it. So, Alada, I want to know, you know, artists, like any entrepreneur, can get overloaded with business-related tasks. Well, how do you ensure that your classes don't become one more added burden? (laughs) That's something I've been working on a lot right now. Uh, For one thing, I uh, have taken a lot of my classes down because there were classes that were at one time were useful. And now the time is over for them, even though they're fairly generic. I'm focusing much more now on this whole idea of balancing art life and marketing and focusing specifically on helping people get out from under overload. Uh, When I started my training career, one of the things I did was to take a speed reading, holistic speed reading class. Because in order to keep up with everything, I was consuming massive amounts of documents every day. And so for me, that really helped me cut through a lot of things. I don't suggest that artists take a speed reading class, but perhaps they need to take kind of a triage approach to overload and ask yourself some questions. Um, For example, when you get all of those emails, I spent uh, my birthday deleting subscriptions to things I just hit delete on anyway, Um, things that used to be useful and weren't anymore. And that happens. Uh, People unsubscribe from my blog and I think, good, they're doing something more with their art instead. They've had what I have to give them. So first question is, do I really need this? Uh, Second thing is, if I think I need it, what's it going to do for me, for my career, for my art, or for somebody that I know? And the third thing is, when do I need this? Do I need it now or can I put it aside for later? Overload, the only thing you can do with overload is start cutting. It's it's simple. If you want to lose weight, one of the things you do is increase your exercise and you cut your food intake. So if you want more time to use the information, cut the amount that you use and go for stuff that really gives you a good impact. So uh, tell me more about the topics that you actually you cover. Well, the topics I cover are, you know, the, a lot of the traditional ones that are covered now by many other people in this business of helping artists. Uh, the foundation of what's involved in a signature body of art is something I've developed a lot more on in the last few years because, again, with the sort of, I think, sliding across the surface, kind of we've gone wide instead of deep in a lot of our explorations. I think that that's one of the things that artists have lost is the ability to really take something and focus it into a coherent body of work. Um, And I think that's still important, uh, even with the variety that some people on the Internet are showing. And so I think that would be the, the first reason, I would say, to start looking at those kinds of things. So how do you deal with artists who don't feel that they've gotten their money worth out of a class? I haven't had one of those. (laughs) Um, But if I do, what I always ask people before, um, I I do have a guarantee that if anyone wants their money back, I, I can freely give it to them. But I always ask people first, what do they want out of a class? So if I'm teaching live, it's really easy to avoid someone being unhappy because all I need to do is find out what people need and then address that. Um, It's one of the relationship things that I teach artists is that one of your biggest ways of making sales is to look around at the people you you know, 
see what they need and help solve their problems. And that will lead you to opportunities. So do artists graduate or do they simply attend until they've gotten what they need from the coursework? Oh, in my in the artist career training course, I, think, I thought you were speaking more generally. In mine, I think that, uh, let me see, I have four people that I have worked with since for 17 years out of the 20. Those are people who have gone from being an emerging artist to an established artist. The rest, uh, most of them will take a program. Uh, my home study programs, for example, start your art business, build your art business. They'll go through the first and the second one uh, on their own because I like people to be able to manage their learning as their uh, time demands um, fit in. And then they will come to me for some coaching. In fact, I developed those programs so that I could offer more affordable programs uh, about the basics of the business. And, of course, the book adds to that, too. But most people will typically work with me for 6 to 12 months and then go on and do things. That's what I want them to do. I want to give them that fishing rod that you were talking about and help them build some accessories for it. What, in your experience, whether it's through coursework or in general, what do artists struggle with the most? Oh, I'd say there's three different things I I would say they struggle with. One is not having a big picture, only fragments. And I think that comes from the fact that, you know, if you're training to be a lawyer, you have to go to law school. If you're training to be an artist, you don't have to go to any school. And so they don't necessarily have that big picture of what they need. And that means their art, their business, and their marketing. Uh, the second thing is that a lot of them, I'll ask them, what have you already done to market your work? And I'll get a list of what I call random acts of promotion instead. Well, I've sent out postcards and I've got a website. And I do some Facebook. And I'm thinking, yeah, what holds it all together? <laughs> Uh, and then the third thing is that this is a really big one, and it's especially showing up now in a lot of my clients, and that is they either have no pricing strategy or a very inconsistent one. And I think that leads to a lot of other mistakes. Now, you began in 1996, changed over the years to accommodate new technology. Yes, it has to a point. Um, I have a wonderful webmaster who loves all of those things. And so uh, probably about mid-2000, no, early 2000, 2002, 3, 4, somewhere in that area. We've been working together so long, I forget when. Um, she began to develop websites for my clients and to do the promotional materials. So we were giving more hands-on support that way to artists. Um, the general curriculum, the core curriculum, began as one single program and then... I gradually, being a trainer, said one size does not fit all. So I gradually led to four different levels of home study programs. And the coaching is particularly where the growth has come. Because uh, as I saw artists struggling more and more over the last 15 years, that's when I began to realize that most of them were coming to me with some knowledge of what they had to do, but they just didn't know where to start or how to continue. And that's where the balancing art, life, and marketing came in. Um, artists were trying to spread themselves so thin that they could barely even just cover their own lives, let alone deal with a business as well. And I think that's been the hardest thing, but I don't think that's exclusive to artists. I mean, I love artists, 
but that's what we're all living in nowadays. Now, we operate, of course, the, the Clark Hewlings Fund Business Accelerator Program, mm-hmm. and we teach business courses and provide business training and tool sets, uh, mentorship, etc., to artists uh, to try to help them thrive in their career and build uh, sustainable programs that will, will drive their businesses forward uh, for the long term. What advice do you have for us at the Clark Hewlings Fund with our program? Oh, so far what you're doing is everything you're doing is what I like. Um, I would say keep doing what you're doing. I like the focus on the combination of uh, an institute that comes out of a real artist's career, so people that understand what that's like. I like the variety of inputs that you get from the artists themselves who are in the accelerator. I think that's really important to have up-to-date artists' voices talking to each other and to have that platform. And, of course, giving artists direct funding is, is amazing. That is where artists need to be able to get more support. If you want corporations to get more involved, I'd like to see them all supporting you so that you can support artists doing that. Uh, keep doing more of it. And um, I don't know if you've done live workshops. I saw some panel presentations. But I think a live workshop would be great, too. Definitely something that is in the works. Had a call about it earlier today, and uh, there's actually a call going on during this show, uh, during this recording of, uh, (laughs) yeah, for exactly that purpose. So uh, definitely one of the the legs of the stool that that we are uh, we're doing. Um, so let me ask you a question, though, and, and this is sort of to lead us to, to this question. Do you think that artists really want to further develop their businesses, or is this simply a push from companies and organizations like yours and like ours? Uh, I think artists, there are a lot of artists who really do want to develop their businesses. Uh, of course, uh, we try and reach out to the people who want to, But I don't think I could push any artist into learning about business who didn't want to because it's just something that takes effort. Uh, If you're going to learn and study something, you're going to have to take time away from other things. Only artists who understand that having a business mindset will help them be able to continue being an artist in the way they want to be is what's going to drive that. You know, all the advertising and promotion in the world doesn't bring people unless they want to. I don't think. You may differ with that. <laughs> uh, as we move into the third portion of our show, I just want to address the audience and say, if you're finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month lets you sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. And as we said, a portion of our funding goes to deliver direct education to artists who've demonstrated a clear, achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. Visit us at clarkhealingsfund.org impact. We'd certainly appreciate it. Now, Alida, many artists consider marketing um, that part of business growth to be a dirty thing or <laughs> manipulative. Uh, how do artists overcome that hurdle or that mentality? Oh, it, it's actually artists. One of the artists I work with at uh, one of the conferences I used to do in California called marketing a big black monster <laughs> in my art marketing class there and challenged me to it. I think uh, marketing, maybe you now you're you come from corporate marketing, you have more marketing, official marketing background than most of us do. 
But I think that, in a way, that's where artists get this idea that it's complex. I mean, I remember being in different organizations when I was an employee and going, wow, they have a whole marketing department, then they have a whole sales department, lots of stuff going on there, and it seems all this mysterious stuff. But the way that artists can think about it that's different is everything is marketing. I think everything is marketing, from you know getting your kids to pick up their clothes to getting good service in the store. So I changed the definition of marketing from you know the traditional one with the four P's, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, all right, let's bring it down to the lowest level. What art marketing is is simply a series of conversations designed to build a bridge between you, your art, and your audience. So when I make art, I'm having a conversation with my materials and you know, my original ideas and all of that's happening. When someone else views my art, they're having their own internal conversations about what they're seeing. And so marketing, for me, the best marketing connects those internal conversations between what's going on with the artist and what's going on with the viewer. And that bridge then starts a relationship. It you know, starts as an acquaintance and then you have to build it. But it's relationships that lead to sales. So each conversation gives you another chance to strengthen that bridge. And you do that through all the different ways you do marketing, all the different media, all the different styles of marketing. They're all relevant. Um, you have to decide how you're going to create your conversations with your audience. And so artists do have to know a lot about their audience, and they can't leave that to chance. I, I want to play devil's advocate. Um, okay. You know, I once heard someone say that um, if you have to explain a poem, it's not a poem. And I remember attending uh, open mic nights and people would read a poem that maybe took 45 seconds, but they'd spend four minutes explaining it before they read the poem. <laughs> and I came to agree. <laughs> and uh, I came much to my chagrin. And, and so what do you say to an artist who says, well, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I love your definition, by the way, that, <laughs> that uh, marketing for artists is a conversation between the artist, the audience, and the art. <laughs> but... Um, shouldn't the art speak for itself? <laughs> oh, I've heard that one. So that's one of the myths. I have a, if, you, if you haven't already got it, get my download of 12 myths when you subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, one of the myths is my art speaks for itself. And if that were true, then why are there art gallery notes? Why are there art critics? Uh, why are there tons of art magazines out there? helping explain. It's because I think art has multiple interpretations. Um, you know, when you see a glass, you know a glass is to drink things out of, but art has a lot of different meanings and purposes. And it can speak for itself if it's very representational. It's very easy to say, well, that's a picture of the bridge I just crossed over. But if it's not, and you want to delve into the mind of the artist, because that's where a lot of the creativity is, then you need to have some conversations. If it's so obscure that only an explanation will do, then that art probably has a very small audience. And I wouldn't necessarily spend my time explaining it to people who are not into it. <laughs> I think it's, again, you can't blanket um, all things uh, with one statement like that. That's funny. That's uh, sort of like saying uh, show, don't tell. And one has to point out that you just told me that. 
And uh, so I, right. I get it. You, <laughs> yeah, it's all of it. Yeah, it's all of it. Yeah. And well, the other thing, uh, let me try it another way because I understand your point, and and there there are people who feel that way, and then they're just not they're going to ignore marketing. The other way I explain it to artists is if you write down the word making and write down the word marketing, there's only three letters difference. R, E, and T. And so all you have to remember that is that R stands for relationships. That's what leads to sales. It's not just your ad. It's not just, you know, there are all kinds of relationships, but I think that's still the bedrock of sales. The second thing is marketing is education for your customers, educating them. For example, when you do a six-by-six piece that is extremely detailed and it takes 40 hours to make and the piece next to it is an abstract and took four hours to make, why does yours cost so much? So you need to educate your viewers about that kind of thing. And then training, which is the training we're talking about, is that artists can get training in all the business and marketing areas that they need so that they have a business where they can go back to making their art. Well, and I also think that, you know, um, visual art is not like a poem or uh, a body of literary work in that um, it's possible for me to own all of the works of Stephen King or T.S. Eliot, but um, I'm never going to own all of the works of a visual artist. And yet, and so it's not a matter of just uh, interpreting um, a piece of art for someone, why do I have to do that? It's the fact that the art itself does not live in a vacuum. It's part of a larger body. It's part of a context. It's part of a life uh, that Mm -hmm. the artist is living. And I need uh, access to the artist uh, himself or herself Mm -hmm. to help me to understand that vision, that concept, that context, and that larger body of work to which I, I may not have direct access. And if that were not true, it would be simply enough to take photographs of your art and send me the photographs, and I that that would be sufficient. Yeah. Uh, so if marketing is thought of that way, if it's helping place art within those contexts of a life, a period of time, and a body of larger work, uh, and how things have changed uh, and evolved through those, uh, then then marketing suddenly starts to make sense. And I but wonder you- if. Um, oh, go ahead. I think that's really true that when things change, it's the context that it's important, not the content. And as the art market changes, I think you've just hit on exactly what the the important part is. Helping people understand the context of the art is very different today because there is a much more detailed context. So, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your thought. Not at all. Um, Well, my next question is, um, this is my favorite part of the show because some of our listeners may know that uh, I am a marketing consultant. I I run a marketing business and I'm a marketing director for other people's companies. So this is my wheelhouse. Uh, I (laughs) often get to teach marketing courses as part of the Accelerator program. And so I'm particularly enthused, uh, which you can tell because I get quieter. (laughs) It means I'm enjoying it. So uh, I want to know what are some examples of effective marketing strategies for artists in your experience? Oh, can I tell you some like people's stories, for example, yes, to do that? Do, of course. Okay. Well, my favorite one, um, I think, right now is one that started oh, two thousand and two. So there are a couple of artists: um, Connie Brand Silver and Nicholas Petrucci. Connie is a, an award-winning photographer. 
has worked for places like National Geographic and photographed one of the uh, endangered species of lemurs in Madagascar. Her husband is a portrait painter in the realist style. He describes his paintings as done in the style of the jeweled masters. And he really does do that. They're extraordinary. They are as different as can be. And for many years, Connie was running Nicholas's marketing and then went to uh, National Association of Nature Photographers Conference where I was speaking and decided that they needed to do some work on their marketing. So we started off with the normal things and I gave them, we developed a marketing plan and so on. And then they went away and did what they were doing. And we met up again a few years later at another conference and they said, okay, we want to work on our legacy project. Um, They were, I think, just entering their 60s and they wanted to make sure that they did something with their skills that made a difference. And so they set up a project called Guardian of the Everglades. Uh, It came out of our discussion of, I just kept asking them what's important. We spent a couple of hours talking about what's important, where did they think they could have impact. And the Everglades, there are many people that um, voluntarily, because they live there, are taking care of the Everglades as an environment. And they're unsung heroes. So one of them you may know, Clyde Butcher, is a photographer down there, and they teamed up with him. And they have created a whole project around saving the Everglades. They got funding for films. They've been doing presentations. They're creating talks for kids in schools. It has wide impact. And this is where artists who may start off with making art because it pleases them, almost all the ones that I know that have gone on and really developed their career have realized that they have something to give back. And what they do by doing this then is show that artists do a lot of good for the environment as well. So that would be one story. Um, The second one, I think, would be Tony Scott, an artist I met years ago. And this is maybe for you it's the same. This is an expensive job because I see a lot of really good art. And Tony... I was down at a an open studio with an art representative who was working with her, and <laughs> this is a, a note to artists. I went to use the restroom before I left, and in there I saw a painting that I really liked. And having, I have a, this may be from my banking days, I have the brain that can scan a room and say, that painting is out of its price range. It's either under or over, because I can I just be, be able to do this from looking at art. And so I wanted to buy this piece of art, and she said to me, oh, I'm sorry, that's from my last show, and I didn't change the price. <laughs> and I looked there, and I said, oh, and I didn't say any more. So she sold it to me for that price. I did go on buy more. But she then realized that she had to take another look at her career and did some work on it. She then also realized that as she was telling me about her work, all of her work is about her own background. She is a combination of African-American and Native American. And over doing some research for uh, on some historical art that she was doing for a commission, she discovered a lot of her own history. And she then created a whole show based on her family history and using uh, other local artists in, to help build some installations for the California... Museum of African-American Art. 
and since then has taken that show um, to Dubai, to China. So she's in the process of educating other countries about her culture through her art. I think those are two really great examples of what can happen and how art marketing can become creative and actually make some real deep impact in the world. Oh, those are great stories. Well, let me ask you this. What about the issue of consistency? Mm -hmm. Um, In my field, of course, this is the bugaboo. Without consistency, marketing doesn't work. Um, That's the major hurdle. Um, It's left as the last thing to do in the day when we have the least energy, much uh, like many of us do with our romantic relationships. You know, hi, honey. Uh, hi, honey, and good night, right? How was your day? Good. So, how was yours? How do, exactly. And, and now I'm turning in. So how, how do we solve that issue of consistency and also having the energy for it with, with artists? Well, I think you saw that consistency has come to mean ubiquitous, I think. Uh, and that's where I have a quarrel with it. Uh, you got to do this all the time. You can't stop. And that's when I was saying to Natalie when we were talking about this conversation that this is where I've been careful about not publishing things that are already out there and, in fact, reducing the amount of things that are out there for artists and focusing more on what it is they can use. So consistency for you might be that once a month, you write an exquisite newsletter and you send it to the people who really want to open it and your open rate's good. It might be that once a month you do an art show. You might choose once a month as your rhythm, and that's okay. That's consistency. When I talk to artists about social media, for example, they say, oh, I, I just don't have time to get on social media every day. I said, well, then don't. If it doesn't work for you and you're dreading doing it, what kind of messages are you going to put out there anyway? You need to be doing things that consistently get you in front of the people who want to see your art. And if you keep doing that and you're exploring that, you'll find out where you need to be and how often you need to be there. I don't think it needs to be every day, and it certainly shouldn't be at the end of the day. In fact, um, my time management system is one that I teach artists, and it's not my personal one. It was developed by... Dan Sullivan called the entrepreneurial time system. And there are three kinds of time. And this is where consistency will come back into this. The first one is focus time. The second one is buffer time. And the third is free time. Now, artists are the worst at booking free time, but that's the thing you should do first. So you take every Sunday off or you, you know, however you figure out your time off. The focus time is the next time you book. And that is, do I have shows coming up? When are they? They need to be on the calendar so I can see them. Um, what else is going on that I need to focus on in terms of my business and my primary relationships that lead me to business. So if I'm talking to a customer today about a commission, that's a focus day. And the third type, buffer time, is all that time you spell preparing to either be able to go on vacation or to meet with a customer or do a gallery show. And that's probably 40 to 50% of your life is that, but the stuff, you know, all the stuff that you have to do to do the rest. And so consistency for me is you decide when your focus days are. Mine are Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Those are the only three days that I do coaching. My other days are Mondays are preparation for coaching. So that's a buffer day. Friday is a 
debrief from coaching follow-up, so that's a buffer day. And if, I, you, if I'm honest, I'll say Saturday's a buffer day, too. Uh, I like to take the whole weekend off, but it doesn't always happen. And Sunday's my day completely in the studio and playing music. So that would be consistency for me as if you put it in back to your word context of earlier. Well, that is consistency, but but does that mean, uh, and I think this would be shocking to some artists, uh, does that mean that we shouldn't spend every day in the studio? Because there are artists who do, who insist on it, who say, that's why I don't have time for my marketing. I need to spend every day in the studio. Are you saying that's that's not true? I No, I don't think that's true. They would prefer to spend, but not need to. There's a big difference between need and want. Uh, if you're spending all your time in the studio because your work is so complex that you have no time for marketing, then you need to consider whether that work is going to give you a career or not. You can't just push it from one end and hope it's going to fit at the other. <laughs> oh, that's a great point. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I wish you could just repeat that, but I'll do it for you. <laughs> okay. So if your work is so complex that you, uh, you, you nothing is left over for marketing, maybe it's not going to sustain you uh, for a career. So I, I love that. That's yeah. a, uh, it's a pristine point. Well, you, at the beginning of the show, you sort of alluded without elaborating to changes in the art market um, and changes into the context in which we're creating now. Is the art market as it stands currently working for artists or is it holding them back? Well, I always like to know, what is the art market? <laughs> um, people throw that term around, but really there is, there. I think there on a broad level, there's two art markets. There's the art market for the you know the auction houses run and Sotheby's and you know isn't it great that Van Gogh made all this money now that he's dead on his latest you know on this great sale of his painting uh, that market is probably out of the realm of most artists but the general art market again has a lot of subdivisions in it so rather than having artists talk about the general art market, which typically, I think, for most people in their heads, they think of galleries and museums. I think you need to think about the art market as kind of made up of a bunch of neighborhoods. There's the gallery neighborhood, there's a museum neighborhood, there's the online um, galleries. There are all these different places now where the art market exists and there is no regulation of it. Absolutely none. It's not like the stock market where because I made a sale, some other artist is going to make less. Um, so it's very hard for me to, to say, well, the art market has changed. The overall, the general economy has changed, and it, I haven't seen any uptick in money coming to artists except, of course, through your foundation. But generally, funding for the arts is always in decline. And that's another reason for artists to be more in charge of making sure that they have a way to make a living. So your art market might be local, it might be you know only online, or it might be in galleries. Um, that's going to vary for every different artist, and they have to figure out where they fit best. Well, it's an interesting point, and of course, the funding that the Clark Hewlings Fund provides working artists is conditional. You know, it's not, hey, you're a great artist, we love your work, here's some money, but it's it's based on do you have a viable business model, yeah. Uh, yeah. which we help you we help you create. Do you have yeah. an investment grade 
uh, business model that we can actually put investment money behind. If this was a startup, if this was Shark Tank, <laughs> if this was The Apprentice, yeah. would yeah. you still be on the show? And when we put money into that business, and yeah. Uh, yeah. and the result that we get out of that is not just furthering a career once, but it's furthering a career in a way that is demonstrably sustainable, but also that we know that um, that there's promise in that career, not just based on the art itself, but based on uh, the the quality of, of the business planning and the business savvy and the training and understanding. In fact, you know, it's uh, I think it would surprise a lot of visual artists to discover that um, that you can be an amazing, amazing artist. And one of the things you could argue, this is a myth, that if, you're, if your art is good enough, you will automatically uh, have a life and a career. And we just go back to Van Gogh, and we know that that's not true. Um, your art can be stellar, and no one finds you. You are not discovered. Uh, you die, and then we yeah. discover your art and in the basement. And yeah. there's, a, there's an 80% chance it ends up in the thrift store or the dumpster or the landfill. And oh, a tiny God. smidgen of a chance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just made some people. I just curdled some milk out there. But, oh, yeah. But actually, you can be a decent artist. You can be a competent artist with business savvy and training and make a career. But if you happen to, to be both, if you happen to be uh, an incredible artist and also business savvy, you can make an, an incredible career. So I, I love what you're saying and I, how it dovetails with, um, with what we're talking about at the Clark Healings Fund as well. And it, it brings me to um, really one of the last questions of, the sh- of this segment. And, and of the show, and we'll, we'll ask you a couple of fun things. Uh, but I, uh, I, we get asked this a lot in roundabout ways, and nobody quite puts it in the way I'm going to put it, but we know what they mean. <laughs> How does an artist become famous? Is there anything in particular that they do that sets, what are the earmarks of the famous? What, what sets them up for success? Hmm. <laughs> You know, I think fame is overrated. <laughs> I really do. Uh, how does an artist become famous? You know, there's a lot of different artists that became famous for a little while and then drifted out of sight. So when someone asks me how does an artist become famous, I ask them first, is that what you really want? Because if you equate fame with also having lots of money to be able to do things, well, then really what you're looking for is you want to make money. So I drill down under that question. I don't have a direct answer for you. What's yours? <laughs> well, it is it is the things that I, I said. I don't think there's a magic recipe. I don't think anyone gives you a guarantee, no, no matter how good you are, no matter how savvy you are. But I do think um, that if you boil down the people that are uh, successful in their lifetime, um, you know, the, the myth is always it's one thing, but that myth comes from non-artists or from yeah. other artists who haven't made yeah. it yet. You can yeah. listen to, you can listen to every non-author uh, tell you what makes other authors famous. You know, well, it's who yeah. you know, or yeah. it's that person really just knows they're very commercial. They know how to run a business, or they just have this incredible gift at connecting with people. Uh, but the re- I think the myth is that it is one thing. And I yeah, think the I think reality that's... is 
that it's the confluence of the more of these things that you have. <laughs> introduction, that's why we focus on this at CHF. We yeah. provide tools, yeah. we provide yeah. introductions and networking yeah. to key people you wouldn't otherwise meet. We right. provide business training, we provide funding. The only thing we don't provide is what you get uh, in your practice area, which is technique. That's something that lots of people are doing. But if you add that, now you've got a constellation of success factors, and your chances yes. of success yeah. rise exponentially. If you're going to bet bet uh, on somebody winning, if you're going to invest, that's when you invest. You bet on that guy. Okay, so what you're saying, talking now, I, I agree with about success factors, but I think fame and success aren't necessarily the same thing. I, I know, and it's, uh, you know, it's funny that um, we, we hear people skim the word success uh, because they, uh, many visual artists um, associate that with a merely commercial sort of reductivist yeah. notion that I'm running, uh, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the world of weary, bleary commerce, you know, to, yeah. to cite Gerard Manley Hopkins. It's, it's, it's toil <laughs> oh, and it's press. Him, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's great. And, and it's, um, you know, it's smeared and bleared with trade, as he would yeah. put it. And yeah. uh, that, that is a hurdle that we, we have to overcome because the moment you do that, what you've said is the recipe for success is starvation. And that isn't true. You know, we have to no. not, we have to refuse business knowledge and business training. We have to, you know, if you're truly pure, if you're morally pure, you will starve, you will not touch the business side of it. And um, I, again, think that myth comes from people, there's every kind of unpublished novelist that will tell you what it takes to yeah. get a novel published. I think there's every yeah. kind of non-successful artist that will tell you that success is dirty. Um, yeah. And yeah. But there's yeah. also the fame side, people, so they, they skirt the success side, and sometimes we hear... Um, we hear the word fame used, or it's essentially like that. It's about reputation. How do I, yeah. and it's a valid, I find that from a marketing standpoint, uh, you know, my company, Madpipe, always says there's three R's to marketing, uh, reach, reputation, and relationships. And those three R's uh, are what an artist needs to develop to be commercially successful. You need to develop your reach, the number of people who are accessing and seeing your art, that have a chance to encounter it in the first place. So you're not talking to an empty room or, or a coffee shop of five people merely. It's a great place yeah. to start. You just want to end up there when you're, when you're old and gray. And then uh, your, your reputation is not, um, it's not too fluffy either. That's about it, it, putting, consistently putting out poignant work. Uh, is part of your reputation. It's your brand. You, you, putting out unique work, work that doesn't look derivative, work that doesn't look like somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Whether you're DuPont or whether you're an, uh, a visual artist, that's critical. So that's yeah. reach and reputation. And then relationships. Uh, when, you, when you have a show, are you just letting the gallery run the show for you and, um, and keep those email addresses for themselves and that's the last time you ever see those people because you don't want to touch the world of marketing? Or are you caring enough about that audience to nurture them in an ongoing conversation? Are you getting those email addresses and letting them know what you're working on and your latest project and what you care about and what you're passionate about? And you know, that, that sort of building a, a context is universally cited by art collectors as one of the factors, not the only factor, yeah. but 
having a relationship with the artist is often yeah. one of the factors cited by collectors for why yeah. they buy art in the first place and why they yeah. buy consistently multiple pieces from the same mm-hmm. artist. So, you know, I think that uh, fame looked at that way um, and success looked at that way compresses and becomes very similar. But the moment we sort of unpack it and use the traditional yeah. dictionary definitions, yes, I think you're right. I love that three R's. I'm going to borrow that. I will quote you, of course, because <laughs> um, I have a similar, my three reasons for marketing art, they kind of map onto this, but they're not exactly, are that you do it for credibility, visibility, and desirability. So credibility meaning that you're the real deal, your style and your talents are recognized by collectors and art professionals and other artists as having, you know, a, you're a credible artist. And recognition, of course, which is a word you used, it's interesting, was uh, affects the value and pricing. People pay more for something that has a, a name on it. And then visibility, you can't be known unless you're seen. And you can't be credible unless you're seen in the right places to the right people to become desirable. And then finally, the desirability is that people want to buy your art more than anything else they could spend their money on or if it's a gallery, to exhibit your art more than any other artist. So those three, yeah, it's a similar, different approach. I really like your three R's. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll say them again for people that are jotting them down. We uh, Again, Madpipe, my company, calls this uh, the Madpipe three R's. Reach, reputation, and relationships. So, mm-hmm. um, And the beauty of that um, is that if you if you achieve those things and you can start with it's a linear path. You can start with yeah. just increasing your audience size, increasing your reach, then move on yep. to growing your reputation, and then move on to really nurturing those relationships. Then you have essentially the rudiments of a marketing plan. You know, and So if uh, I were to say, take your three R's and say to artists, all right, if you want, don't want to get all stuck into the weeds of marketing, do one thing every day to expand your reach. Do one thing every day to improve your reputation and nurture one relationship every day. If you do those three things every day, how far could you get? Oh, yeah. I think you could be quite successful. So those things, um, we, we call that the principle of recapitulation, that, that um, you can look at these as phases. Mm-hmm. If, if this was a business client, I would say, well, in, in the first quarter of 2017, we're going to work on growing your reach. Mm-hmm. And in the middle two quarters, we're mm-hmm. going to grow your reputation. Yeah. And in the, in the fourth quarter, we're going we're gonna to grow your relationships. Uh, but in the meantime, in quarter one, while we're working on reach overall, we're really also every day doing something to grow reach, yeah. reputation, and relationships, yeah. all three. Yeah. Um, so each, each quarter is recapitulating all the other quarters. And, uh, and so, yes, artists can benefit from this. This is um, what I mean about thinking about marketing in a way that doesn't lead to starvation, but it leads to empowerment as a creative professional, which is, of course, what we are. Well, and also, I mean, frankly, you know, it's important to point out there are some good outcomes of marketing, like continuity. You get to keep making your art and building your business and profitability, which is you get to pay your bills and sustainability. You can move out of mom's basement or off of your friend's sofa. <laughs> you can get a bigger studio. Or take over her whole house for your studio. <laughs> you, can get a, you can get a Brooklyn loft. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard that before. That's the goal. Oh yeah, that's the goal in New York City is to get a, a loft in Brooklyn. Then you've you've re- that's it. You know you don't want to come out of your loft after that. You've you've achieved it. The only thing beyond that is fame. <laughs> that's great. We're big on our loft. 
So, Alida, I, uh, I have one more question as we wind down the show uh, about what we've been talking about, and then we'll kick around and, and just have a little bit of fun as we close. And that is, what do you hope to accomplish through art career training in the next 10 years? 10 years. I was going to retire earlier than that. <laughs> but I'm planning to complete what I've started in a couple of projects. My legacy project for my business that I talked about was to write the book on the life of artists and what it's really like. And so I'm continuing to reach out with that, and I would like to see that into art schools. I would like to see that in high schools. I, it's a reference book that I wrote as an evergreen book so that doesn't matter what happens in technology, the fundamentals are there. And I think that that would be a great thing to get in the hands of anybody who has ever thought about being an artist. So aside from any, you know, ongoing um, business goals of mine, my wider reach goal, to use your word, is to get that out far wider than just on the Internet and through the artists who already know about my work. Um, the second thing is to add to all of the experience that I've had through writing this book is I'm also now working with uh, writers as well as visual artists because, as you say, it's something to think about writing a book and yet another thing to do it. And it took about seven years to do mine, and I learned a lot about it. And I want to introduce some of the concepts to artists. I'm working with some right now, for example, on their books. So that would be a new area to go into, which I'm really excited about. And then the other one is is not necessarily an artist career training one, but in my own art uh, practice, I've just begun my art legacy project, which I'm calling The Last Art Show. And by 2021, I want to travel it across the country. Uh, it's a 13-part installation, so it's going to take me a little time to do it. <laughs> so that's where I'm headed. Well, so you, you could be doing this for the next 10 years. <laughs> so that, that would be uh, great the for art all part, of us. Yeah, but I probably, yeah, I could be doing it. for. I always say I'm going to stop, and then I think, oh, but wait, I've got this great idea. <laughs> So who knows? Yes. Why stop when there's already momentum? I, I believe in inertia. You know, yes. a body in motion yes. tends to stay in motion. Stays in motion. <laughs> Unless there's some outside yeah. force that, that acts on us. And, and then we hope there's no outside force. So that's great. All right. Funny so, you should say that. When, when people came to my loft gallery, they used to ask where the chairs were. And I went, <laughs> why would I need chairs? <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> and now there's nothing but. Well, I, I want to uh, finish up by just asking you a couple of uh, just-for-fun questions uh, to end our show. And one of those is, uh, you know, if you could go back in time if you, and you knew then what you know now, uh, you could do one thing differently. What would that be? What would you do differently? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. I've been reading uh, Handmade Art just has these, you know, what advice would you give your 30-year-old self? You know, I, that's kind of an impossible question for me because I would miss out all of the things that I've had in my life that have come to me that I thought were obstacles and became opportunities and that I thought were opportunities and they went south. So I wouldn't change a thing. I think uh, my approach is to say yes to everything, even at first if it's like, yes, through my teeth, and figure out how to deal with it, because I don't think I could second guess 
the future that I've created, and I kind of like a lot of what's happened. All right. Well, then even let's, the illness part. Then let's pivot and ask you a related question, which is: if you could have a single superpower or technology that would allow you to do something now that you're currently just not able to do with your art or career, what would you choose? Superpower. I would. It would be a physical goal. I would choose more hand strength. Um, as a result of my, I have lupus, and as a result of that, I have considerable challenges physically, sometimes to do both my coaching and my artwork. And my superpower would be that I could just go, okay, gone for now. And I would just have the energy and strength I needed to do either my coaching or my training or whatever I wanted to do. That would be an amazing superpower. Excellent. Well, Alida, this has been a fantastic show. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. For more information on art career training and Alida DeWall, visit artistcareertraining.com. That's artistcareertraining.com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. To sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org slash impact. And be sure and follow our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Alida. It's been really great having you. Thank you.